As you're having a seat, we're going to invite the children to be dismissed for Children's Church. As our worship team's coming down, I need to share some news with y'all. We want to be praying for Miss Danielle and Lizzie and JT this morning. They're about to have to step out of here. Um, Tragic situation happened last night. Um, Lizzie and JT's grandmother on their father's side, um, there was an auto accident. She was struck by a vehicle and she passed away. And she lives up in Warren, Texas. And so uh, Danielle and JT are going to head to Warren and be with the family there. Lizzie has to go the opposite direction. She has to go to San Marcos uh, to be at school. So before y'all go, we're going to pray for y'all. And, uh, and we're going to pray for our time together here. Uh, Lord, the song says there is nothing that can separate us from your love, but... Truth be told, uh, there are things in this life that happen that make us feel separated from goodness. Lord, um, uh, tragic accidents such as this family is grieving over, Lord, is one of those things. Lord, I trust this. I trust that while we might have those feelings those concerns that there's just hardness sometimes and not goodness. I trust you, you come, you send your spirit, Lord, you send people filled with your spirit, you send songs, you send uh, poems, you send scripture, Lord, Lord, you speak to us to remind us and to encourage us that you are and that you are good and that you do love us. And so, Lord, that's my prayer for uh Danielle and JT and Lizzie, I pray that you would send your spirit in all the ways that your spirit wants to speak. Speak a good word to them about your faithfulness and your love. God, I pray and I ask that you would, uh, uh, Lord, be with Lizzie. I know she can't go be with the rest of the family today. And that's a, that's a whole, like, added grief to this situation. So we pray for her heart. We pray that as she drives back, that, Lord, she will know that she's not alone in her vehicle, that you will be present with her. You will attend to her. Lord, we pray and we ask that you would uh, just help this family, Lord, um, to minister to their family. Uh, God, thank you for them ministering to us today. Thank you that despite their grief and their loss and their their confusion over the situation and the shock of the situation, that they came in and they said, we want to lead our church family in worship. Bless them for this, Lord. Lord, bless us today as we we turn to your word. We pray that you would attend to us, that you would speak to us, that you'd minister to us today as we are gathered. I pray all these things in the mighty, resurrected name of Jesus. Amen. We love you all so much. God bless you as you go, okay? So, this morning we're starting a new sermon series entitled Resurrection in Romans. Uh, The other day, I uh, sent out an email, and in that email, I I, I mentioned that that resurrection is a pervasive theme throughout Romans. And I said, that might not come as a surprise to you. But I have a hankering, it does a little bit come as a surprise to us, because... uh, I don't know, if, if you're like me, you, you were raised to know the Romans Road. Y'all know the Romans Road? Are you familiar? The Romans Road to what? Salvation. salvation, right? The Romans Road to salvation. And in the Romans Road, it talks about, you know, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come uh, short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, no, not one. Oh, no, everybody sinned. What, what happens? Well, what, what's, what's, what's the big deal about sin? Well, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, man, you've all sinned, and, 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 and then there's a penalty. Death is the penalty. It's the payment. It's the compensation for sin. But don't, but don't be too dismayed, because there's a gift from God. 
Well, what is this gift? Romans 5, 8. God commended his love toward us. Now, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, so you're a sinner. Your sin has a, has, has a payment, and that payment is death. But God has a gift for you. A gift is something that you don't earn, you don't pay for. What is this gift? This gift is his son, Jesus, coming and, and dying for you on the cross. So now what do you do? Now what do you do? Well, if you can confess God has raised, that Jesus is Lord, that God has raised him from death, you shall be saved. For with, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, confesses unto salvation. Y'all familiar, right? Y'all remember? What stood out to me in Romans, especially as tied to the Romans road, and I think for a lot of us, is not the resurrection of Jesus, but the death of Jesus. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And so like when we read Romans, you don't naturally probably have this this, this thought process about resurrection and new life. In, in, in fact, Romans has been used, especially for the last 400 years since the Protestant Reformation, to really, to really be the, the linchpin for, um, for one atonement theory called penal substitutionary atonement theory. And y'all should know that is one atonement theory out of a lot of atonement theories, or out of several atonement theories. And it's the latest one, actually. Uh, the earlier atonement theories, uh, the, the, one of the first ones was Christus Victor, that Christ has, 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 has uh, accomplished a victory over the principalities and powers of darkness. So, because Romans was tied to the Romans road, and because Romans uh, was, was used to, to really kind of drive home this, uh, this, this particular way of, of reading and understanding the death of Christ, uh, death looms large over Romans. Now, there are these moments, like in Romans chapter 6, where it says, like, hey, you know, th this great moment where it talks about how Christ died and, and he rose to new life. And so that's what baptism is for us. It's this picture of death and resurrection. But again, it was always emphasis on the death and uh, not so much in my heart, my mind, emphasis on the resurrection. So all that to say is I had a hankering that it might surprise you a little bit to find out how pervasive resurrection is in Romans. And so this morning, I want to show you a couple passages and um, in, in in, in J.R. Daniel Kirk, in, his, in one of his commentaries on Romans, he says, you know, the fact that, that resurrection shows up in every section of Paul's letter and at key moments should, should, should speak something to us. And, and, and so with that in mind, I want us to see from the introduction, from Paul's introduction and Paul's conclusion in Romans chapter 15, and whenever I talk about introduction and conclusion, I'm talking about introduction to his argument and conclusion of his argument. There's still some more that he has to say, but here's the introduction to my argument. Here's the conclusion to my argument. From his introduction to his conclusion, we are going to see uh, that Paul, that resurrection is, is like pivotal in those two, in those two sections and those two passages. And that I just want to kind of encourage us like, hey, we're going to keep going through Romans, and this is resurrection. Resurrection is key and critical for Romans. And then I want us to talk about why a little bit today. And there's a number of reasons why, but one of the, one of the reasons we find actually in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which most of y'all could quote. What's Romans 1, 16 and 17? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And this is where we're really going to kind of uh, find... Uh, Kind of the emphasis and the 
and the, and the primary point of the sermon is that Paul uses resurrection and he speaks of resurrection to a people who were questioning whether God was really being righteous. Another way to think about God being righteous, we should think about God being faithful to his covenant. God being true to his promises. See, you and I, we don't know the God of the Bible apart from the story, connected, apart from being connected to the story of Israel. God doesn't just come on the scene uh, into a world, into a vo- vacuum, and into a void and say, hey, I'm God, and there's my son Jesus. In fact, it is, it is, a, it is, a, it is a story in which God, whenever he speaks to Moses, he doesn't just say, hey, Moses, I'm God. He says, Moses, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob or Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. See, God has a very particular, it's a very particular God that we're talking about. And in those days, that's necessary because, because unlike here in America where we, for the general part, we, we believe in this idea of monotheism and it's not, uh, it's either you believe that there is a God or there's not a God. And if you do believe that there is a God, then you just kind of assume it's the God of the Bible. There's a lot of assumptions in that, in that way. Moses wasn't one of those people who grew up in a monotheistic world. He grew up in a polytheistic world. He grew up in Egypt. And they worshipped all types of gods. And even their emperor, their, their, their pharaoh, would have been considered almost a god. Uh, a quasi-divine man. That's how he got so much power. That's how he got so much authority. That's why he is to be trusted. That's why he is to be revered. That's why his law stands. And I say all this to say, God has revealed himself in a very particular way through the children of Israel and through his covenants and his promises that he made to Israel. God revealed himself in a very particular way. And the covenants and the promises, there's a few things tied to that. You're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. I'm going to give you a land. And I'm going to give you a seed. Right? All these things are tied into this. Into this. And so all that to say is you got to think about this. After the exile, when Jerusalem was destroyed, and God began to promise restoration and renewal, he said, you're going to return to your land, and I'm going to restore you and make you a, a, a sovereign nation once again. After they returned to the real land, they were able to rebuild the temple They were able to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. They were able to inhabit the city. But then, for the next several hundred years, they were under somebody else's authority. They went from the Babylonians to the Persians. And on down the line, you got to even where the Greeks were in charge of them and the Romans were in charge of them. And so here's what you have to understand. The promise is, I'm going to bring you back to the land. The promise is, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to make you whole. I am going to raise you up and you will have dominance and you will have prestige and you will have power and you will have authority. The Gentiles, all the nations are going to come and worship at Jerusalem. That's the promise. But what's the reality? What's the reality? Is the reality that Israel is a, is a sovereign nation and where they're expressing dominance over the nations around them? Where the nations are running to them and they're, they're wanting to be fed and, and not only by their law and by their, by their goodness, but, 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 but take on their customs and their manners. Is that what has happened or has something else happened? Has Israel been in the land, but under one oppressive regime after another. I want you all to think about this right now. 
we have a heart for the people in Ukraine because we have deep ministry ties in Ukraine. Several of us in this room have been to Ukraine either once or multiple times. And we know what's happening right now. There is a war in Ukraine wherein Russia wants to come and it, Russia wants to resume its authority over Ukraine, which it stole from them in the early 20th century and relinquished in the late 20th century, but they want it back. They want it back. And so these Ukrainian people are fighting tooth and nail right now so that they don't have to. So as Ukrainians, they don't have to be under the rule of Russia. And you could go, well, that's because Russia's terrible. I can promise you if it was America, they wouldn't want to be under the rule of America. They want to be free, sovereign people. They want to enjoy their freedom and their sovereignty. They want to, they want to make their nation something. I tell you that to say that is what Israel wanted. They wanted out from under the oppression of Rome. And so here's the deal. After several hundred years of this not happening, a question, questions begin to arise. Here's question number one. Has God forsaken us? Has God forsaken us? Did he forget the promises? Did he give up on the promises? Here's another question that would have come up. Uh, is God not able? Is he powerless? Is he not able to do this? Another question might come up. Is God trustworthy? Not, not has he forsaken the promise because we messed up and Israel messed up, but, but was he is he trustworthy? Can we trust him to be faithful to the promises? See, these questions came up for those people, and what happened with the, 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 the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus is Paul is saying all of that, especially the resurrection, is the revelation that God is righteous. And we can expand that word. That means that God, that God, God is just. He's, he's, he's trustworthy. God, God is able. Right? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So, I want us to see, as we walk through resurrection in Romans, a number of things. But one of the things that we want to see is that Paul here is making a case. Paul is making a case that in the resurrection of Jesus, it is proved that God is good. That God is trustworthy. The promises that he gives you are true trustworthy. God is faithful. He who promises to, 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 to restore us and raise us up to new life, God is faithful to keep that promise. God is good. God is good. He, he, he good in the sense that he, he, he actually does what is healthy and loving, and caring for people. Uh, that God is just. Justice is a big theme throughout Scripture. You know, we, we, we just, you know, you grew up probably whenever you went up to your parents and you said, oh, that's not fair. And they said, well, that's it. Life's not fair. Well, throughout Scripture, if you said that God is just, then people wanted to say, okay, God, if you're really just, then the wicked will get what's coming to the wicked and the righteous will get what's coming to the righteous. But let me ask you, what world do you live in? Do you live in a world where the wicked get what's coming to them? 
and where the innocent where the innocent are taken care of and protected? Or do you live in a world where the marginalized and the vulnerable get exploited and oppressed? They get taken advantage of. Do you live in a world where you see it looks like there are wicked people who are prospering everywhere? See, in the biblical story, throughout the biblical story, just saying, well, life's not fair is not enough. Because the God that we serve, the God that we trust, the God that we worship, the God in whom we believe is trustworthy is just. And so, we want to see God be just. We want to see him take care of the weak and the vulnerable and the marginalized and the righteous and the holy. And we want to see punishment. Just punishment. Just recompense for those people who do horrible, atrocious things. Paul says in the resurrection of Jesus... You get to see God being just. So, that's what we're looking at today. Let me show you a couple passages so that we can see how that resurrection really is very pervasive in the book of Romans. The first passage I'll turn your attention to is his introduction, and this is chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And Paul begins his letter this way. He says, from Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Every, if you study ancient letters, they have this introduction, from me to you. We usually just say, dear so-and-so. And then we go through our, our whole letter, and then at the end we say, sincerely, me. Right? Ancient uh, Roman letters would all start out with, from X to Y. From me to you. So from Paul, who is Paul? He says, I'm, he self-describes himself as a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. This is an ambassador, somebody who's going to um, be, a, be a royal emissary for a king. You could think about it that way. He says, called to be an apostle, set apart specifically for the gospel of God. And then he says, let me tell you something about this gospel. This gospel, he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Listen, I'm telling you about the gospel, and let me tell you something about the gospel. The gospel is given to us by God. It's a promise from God, and it's a promise that you can see in the Holy Scriptures. What you will find is that there is a ton of allusions or actual quotations of Old Testament text in Romans, and that is in part because Paul is saying, God has promised it, I'm going to show you where he promised it, and I'm going to show you how in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that it's fulfilled. That this promise, he's made good on this promise. And this is a way of which Paul is already introducing us into what he wants us to, to see. Hey, listen, I'm telling you about the gospel. And here's something that you need to know about the gospel. God promised us the gospel. He promised it through the scriptures. And so whenever I set out to write this letter, what I want you to know, one of my purposes here is to defend, to defend God and the promises that he made. I want to make a case that God made good on his promises. I want to make a case that God made good on the promise. So he says, this gospel was promised beforehand by God through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. Here's what the gospel, the good news concerns his son, who was a descendant of David with reference to the flesh, who was appointed the son of God in power, according to the Holy Spirit, by the resurrection from the dead. This good news was a promise of God through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures 
So I'm telling you that God made a promise, and I'm telling you that God has made good on that promise. How did he make good on that promise? Because he took Jesus, who was of the lineage of David, and through the resurrection, he has appointed him or ordained him to be the son of God in power. Son of God in power is the one who sits on the throne. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. How did he do this? By raising Jesus from death. Then he goes on, he says, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through him we have received grace and our apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles on behalf of his name. You also are among them called uh, called to belong to Jesus, to all those that to all those loved by God in Rome. That's where you get the two from Paul. And I'm going to give you who I am, and I'm going to expand some things from Paul to who? To all those loved by God in Rome, to all those who are called to be saints. Here's my greetings to you. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, in chapter 1, in his introduction, wants to set out and say, I'm talking about promises that God made to his people Israel, and I am here to defend them and to say that these promises have been made good through the resurrection of Jesus. Chapter 15, Paul's conclusion. And this is chapter 15, verses 7 through 13. Like I said, this is not the end of the book, but this is the end of Paul's argument here. He's going to go on and he's going to give them some travel plans and a prayer request. And then he's going to go on in chapter 16 and he's going to commend a whole bunch of people uh, to them for them to, to greet and to welcome and to serve with and to partner with. But before he gets to that, he says, listen, receive one another just as Christ also received you. And this is all to God's glory. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth, why? To confirm the promises made to the fathers. See, what Jesus has done has revealed that God is faithful. That he is true to his promises. And that is, and what he says is not just that is a secondary thing that happened. Paul puts that front and center. Jesus has become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth so that he could confirm the promises that were made to their forefathers. Then he goes on and he says, And thus, the Gentiles glorify God for his mercy. God made this promise. This promise is revealed in Jesus. It's revealed primarily through his resurrection. It confirms to Israel, to the children of God, that he is trustworthy, that he is good, that he's righteous, that he's faithful, that he is really worthy to be trusted and to be obeyed. And the Gentiles who get to see God's mercy on his own people and then his mercy towards them, they glorify God for his mercy. And then Paul goes, he says, just like it's written, he says, because of this, I will confess you among the Gentiles and I will sing praises to your name. Because it was written, where was it written that this was to be said? Well, let me give you these scripture references real quick. If I can find the right note. Well, wouldn't you know it? That one's in Deuteronomy. Yes. Listen, I went through and I wrote down all these references 
and I can't find them. Y'all know how f fun that is? There you go. Y'all listen to Miss Kathy. She's here to teach y'all today. So Deuteronomy what? Deuteronomy 32.43 is that first one. Because of this, I will confess you among the Gentiles, and I will sing praises to your name. Uh, Psalm, Psalm 18.49, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, another psalm, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And then he goes on, and he says, and even Isaiah says this, and this is Isaiah 11, verse 10. And this is important. He says, the root of Jesse will come, and the one who rises to rule over the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. And him who rises to rule over the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. I want you all to think about that word rises there. Because that has several different images that can come to your mind, right? If you're thinking about somebody rising to the throne, you could just think about somebody standing and ascending and exalting to their throne. You can think about somebody rising to power, right? Like David had his rise to power. But the Greek word there is the same root word that we have in chapter 1, verse number 4, that says that Jesus was to, declared to be the son or appointed to be the son of God in power through the resurrection. That rise there is the same root word that we get the word resurrection from. So what Paul is trying to point the people to is not just somebody who rose to power like David rose to power. But he is trying to point them and say, hey, look, even Isaiah was talking about this. The root of Jesse will come. And the one who rises to rule over the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So at the end of his conclusion, he talks about being there as a defense for God. That Jesus is there to defend God's honor, if you will, to reveal God's righteousness, to reveal God's goodness. That this also is an extension of God's mercy to the Gentiles. We'll talk about that another day. But all this happens, not just to a rise to power, but all this happens through a resurrection. And then Paul says this, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, as you believe in him, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May God fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him. Why do I say any of this today? A, I think it's good Bible study, and I'm always down for a good Bible study, even if you aren't. Just joking. I'm always down for a good Bible study. I like to nerd out on Scripture. I like to know what it's saying, why it's saying. I want to know the context. I want to know all the different interpretations of it. I don't want to read one person's traditional, you know, like one tradition's interpretation. I want to go and I want to find out how is it, how, how did Eastern Orthodox look at this? How did Roman Catholics look at this? How did Methodists look at this? How did Baptists look at this? How did Pentecostals look at this? I want to know the traditions. I don't want to know what's happened in the last 400 years and go, oh, well, we figured it out 400 years ago. I want to go back uh, 700 years, 800 years, 1,000 years, 1,500 years. I want to go back to the church fathers and I want to find out, hey, how do they read this text? How do they deal with this text? So I can always nerd out on the text. And y'all might not appreciate it all the time, but I do, all right? I really like to get into the text and to figure out things and to understand and, 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 and know better the text because I really do love scripture so much. I value this text. I think it's an amazing, it's amazing um, this, how this has been compiled and how it's been brought together over thousands of years. And, and, and there are contradictions, and I hate when people say that there aren't contradictions. There are contradictions in Scripture. Go read uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16 and then read chapter 17, and you're going to find two different stories about David meeting Saul. Those are not, I mean, they just stand in contrast to one another. 
about how he met Saul, how he was introduced to Saul, how he got into Saul's court. There are two different stories. One is that he, he began to play his harp whenever Saul had, had these headaches. The other one is, is that he showed up and he defeated the Goliath, uh, or the Philistine um, Goliath, the giant Goliath. They're two different stories. And I'm not going to lie about that whenever I read the text. I'm not going to try to harmonize it. I'm going to go, this is pretty amazing. That they had two different stories about how he got to know who Saul was. I love the text. But I'm not here just to go, hey, listen, let's have a nerd session with the text. I really believe that there's something to this idea of us unlocking Romans and seeing resurrection prevalent through it and also seeing that one of the primary purposes that Paul wants to do is basically make a case for God's righteousness. And here's why. A, I love that the Bible is honest with their questions about God. And I don't think you and I are, have been given freedom or you have the gumption to actually be honest with God. And I want us to see that the Bible is very honest with their questions about God. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for, for in it the power of God is revealed, uh, or, or for it is the power of God unto salvation, and in it uh, the righteousness of God is revealed, and it says, from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul is quoting Habakkuk. Chapter 2. And if you know anything about the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 1 starts out with the prophet coming to God and saying, how long are you going to let this mess go on, God? We live in a world that is messy. We live in a world where the promises that you made to us aren't seeming to be fulfilled. And the prophet doesn't go, well, I'm just going to zip my lips and trust God, and I'm just going to make sure everybody knows, like, if they look at me, the... the, the they're not going to see the, the, the questions that are in my heart and in my mind. And God's never going to hear them. Habakkuk goes to God and says, God, how long is this going to go on? We can't keep living in this world where there are children who are being stolen and trafficked. We can't keep doing that. God, we, want, we need you to act. We need you to work. We need to see actual justice flowing down in our streets. The reason why I would like to bring that up is that the Bible is honest about it because I think we need to be honest about it because I think you and I don't need just to pray these prayers that are safety net prayers. Oh God, I hope that you'll do something. But whatever you really want to happen, I think that you and I should be freed to be as bold as the prophets and go to God and say, you know what? What is happening not only in Ukraine, what is happening down my street is horrific. What is happening down my street is horrific. And I can't take it anymore. And I'm not going to pretend that if we get the right guy in office, it's going to stop. Because we've had the right guys and the right gals. And we've had the right leaders over and over and over again that we thought were going to be the ones. And guess what? We're still here. It's still a mess. And so I'm going to the one that I really believe that can make anything happen. And I'm not going to the president. I'm not going to the leader of the UN. I'm going to the king of kings and the lord of lords. And I'm saying to you, God... How long? How long? See, I want us to see that Paul has no problem. He has no problem defending God's righteousness because he knew it was a real question on people's hearts and in their minds. I would imagine it was a question that Paul had to wrestle with himself before he met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. And I think we as Christians have to be raw and honest about this, that there is a world of people who are looking at the evidence on the news each and every night, and they're going, if there is a God in heaven, he is either powerless to it, or he's not really good, 
And you and I need an answer more than, I just think that he's good. You and I need a concrete answer like, I know he's good because Jesus, Jesus was mocked and ridiculed even though he did no wrong. Jesus was an innocent person who suffered unjustly. They tortured him and they spit in his face and they plucked out his beard. And we thought, all of humanity thought, here we go again. Another innocent who was trying to do right, who was being righteous and wise and holy, but the powers that be are going to snuff out his life. Here we go again. But it wasn't here we go again. Because on the third day, God, the righteous just, Judge, the just judge, God who is good, God who is faithful to his promises, God who said, I will never actually fully, ultimately leave you or forsake you. I will never abandon you. On the third day, God took that innocent one who suffered unjustly and he rose, he gave him new life again. He raised him from death. And he didn't just raise him from death. He exalted him to the right. He appointed him as the son of God with power. He appointed him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so because that happened, because that happened, it assures me, it assures me that all those who die in Christ Trusting in Christ, believing in Christ, following Jesus. All those who die in Christ will, like Christ, be raised up on the last day. It assures me that there will be a day when the wicked are righteously judged and the just are righteously judged. It assures me of that. It assures me that the promises that God made to that particular people, Israel, are not just for Israel, but they are for the whole world. And that his mercy and his grace was not just for his son, Jesus, excuse me, for his son, Jesus, but for every person who trusts in Jesus and follows Jesus and is committed to the way of Jesus. See, you and I, when we understand that it is the resurrection of Jesus that actually is the defense of God, we have a defense that we can make or we have a case that we can make to this world that's not just hand-waving. That's not just saying, well, I, I think things are going to be good. I think they're going to be all right. You and I have a testimony that we can say, hey, listen, I know an, an, an innocent who suffered unjustly. And let me show you what God did to him. And you know what that does? That informs me that all who are in Christ, all who continue to walk the way of obedience will one day be raised to new life. It's not only because of our witness, but it's also because of our heart. Because truth be told, there's been times where you've gone, God, I can't take anymore. I'm done. And I don't care what it is. Y'all might think it takes a whole big thing to knock you off, but it doesn't always take a big thing. Brother Mitch and I were talking about this with Miss, about Miss Karen this week, and we've talked about her being like an awesome, awesome, awesome testimony this last year. And that's not to put pressure on you, Miss Karen. If you want to lose your mind at any point, you are welcome to lose your mind. We will stand with you no matter what, I promise you that. You are not only welcome here because you show up and you are faithful. And you continue to serve and you continue to pour out your heart and your, and your de dainty, delectable treats to us. <laughs> she has gone through hell this last year and she lives with hell every day 
and it hasn't knocked her off. And that's pretty awesome. But I know this, sometimes I don't get my way and it knocks me off, <laughs> right? You know, I just don't get my way for a brief moment and it can knock me off my point. My character is lost. I'll tell you a quick story. We're driving to uh, Weatherford uh, Friday a week ago. We're driving up there to surprise my in-law, my father-in-law because his birthday was last Saturday. Uh, we're about uh, over halfway through the trip up on 45 and um, lights start going off on my dashboard, which is always a fun thing to see whenever you're driving on a road trip late at night. And I was like, oh, cool. This is fun. What's going on? And I was like, what did I win? What did I win? Yeah. And uh, what I found out was that my alternator was, was, was acting up and and so then I'm like, well, my car is going to die at any moment. And so I'm just kind of like, you know, stressed in, 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 in trying to make it on this trip. We did end up making it safe and sound without any uh, trips on the side of the road or any, any tow trucks or anything. But while I'm going through this, I'm, I'm, I, I have a whole lot of things going on in my head and my heart. I'm stressed. I'm tired. I, 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 I don't want to have to be over on the side of the road. And, and, and then my boys in the back start fighting over something. And that was just like, oh, this is, I've got a peaceful, easy feeling. Right, Brother Mitch? My boys start fighting in the back, and we get them calmed down. And, um, and, and it takes like five minutes of one of them. I'm not going to tell you which one because I try not to embarrass them. But um, just scream, like whining, like audibly whining. And like I'm just having to endure that. And then he finally calms down. And then like two minutes later, he's like, can I get water? And I'm like, who do you think you are? <laughs> like, like, you... You, you don't even read the room, right? And he's like, can I get water? And I said, and I, I'm like exiting and I'm making a big turn. And I was like, hey, look, hey, can we just chill out just for a minute and we can talk about it? And he immediately, ah! And then I lost it. I was like, I can show you who could be a bigger baby right now. I can do it. And, you know, there's some times whenever you're thinking, man, my bride, she gets me. She's right there with me. I did not feel that at this moment. She was like, you have lost your mind over this? And uh, she confirmed it later. I didn't ask her right there in the moment, but later she was like, you're being a baby. And I was like, okay. okay. Well, you've been a baby too. You know, that's how, that's how those are healthy conversations. Um, but, uh, but it doesn't always take something major to knock me off my point. And it probably doesn't always take something major to knock you off your point. You lose your character, you lose your testimony, you're frustrated, you throw your hands up. And it can be in moments like that where you go, I'm trusting in something, is it even true? Are God's promises even to be relied upon? Is his hope for justice something that's, that I can grab onto? Is he really good? The song says, you are good good oh and sometimes i'm like i don't know and so my brothers my sisters we have resurrection in romans to remind us to assure us to comfort us not just the world that needs it who doesn't know but those of us who do know we have romans there to say, hey, God really is righteous, and that righteousness of God has been most fully revealed in the resurrection of his son, Jesus. God really does love you, and it's not whether or not you lose your job next week or you get a cancer diagnosis next week. God loves you, and that was revealed in Jesus' resurrection from death. God really is going to set this world right. He is really going to vindicate the innocent. We know that. Because he did it with Jesus. Because Jesus was an innocent who suffered unjustly. And God vindicated him. And so Paul says, at the conclusion of his argument, now, my brothers and my sisters, I know sometimes you look around this world and you go, how long, God? But now that I've made my argument, now... Here's my prayer. 
May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him. Think about that word believe for a second. Is that just subscribing to a list of suppositions? To me, given the stakes, I think believe kind of rolls off the tongue and sometimes it doesn't get it, but maybe like, maybe this, as you cling to him. See, because that's where I feel like we really are at in this desperate world that we live in. It's not just, yeah, I believe in God. It's I'm clinging to this because if he's not true, if his promises aren't to be trusted, if he's not going to be faithful to the covenant, if he's not going to be merciful to the sinner and he's not going to vindicate the innocent, if he's not true, we have nothing else. So may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you cling to him, as you hold on tight so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul wanted to do. He wanted to set forth this argument centered on the resurrection making a case that God is good so that the people that he wrote to could be filled with joy and peace as they continued to hope in the resurrection that was coming to every last one of them. So my brothers and my sisters, my prayer is that today you will be filled with joy and peace. And you will hope that the resurrection of Jesus, in the resurrection of Jesus, and in the resurrection that he's promised to all those who trust in him. And with that, I say, amen. I'm going to invite you at this time to close your eyes. I'm going to invite you to...